And so we got everything ready and we made all of our preparations and we went there, but, but there was no way to really prepare us for what we were going to face when we arrived and we got on site and we began ministering among the children and the youth and the parents in this particular community. It was called Laura Flore. So it's like um, a lady's name, Laura, and then the word flowers. So you got this picture of this kind of beautiful, uh, lush, tropical paradise. And uh, we arrived there and were stunned with what we found. When we got to the community, we drove in and uh, we made it in on some very rough dirt roads. The community sat just on the edge of a very big town, a town with about, at that time, about 350,000 people, and so it's a pretty good-sized town. And so this sat right on the edge of one of the main roads, and you take this road off, and, it's, and you go into this community, and you notice immediately that something was a little bit wrong with the community. You couldn't really figure it out, but things just didn't seem right. Houses didn't seem right, streets didn't seem right, yards didn't seem right, seem right. because in most of the little communities you, you go into in Ecuador, there's, because the, the ground is so fertile, and because the, the, the rain regular and the climate tropical, it's on the equator, uh, most everything just grows and grows and grows and grows. And you get there and you notice just a few flowers and things were just kind of barren and you're thinking, there's something wrong here. And you notice that the roads look kind of weird. They look kind of trashy. It's like, it's like stuff is stuck in the road and it's trash. And you're, you're going, I don't know what's going on here. So we began to meet with the community leaders and to get to know a little bit. And here's what we found out. We found out that in order to house these uh, impoverished people there in Ecuador, here's what they had done. They had built an entire community for several hundred people that built it on a dump. They had taken the town dump with all of its refuse, all of its garbage, all of the things that people discard, and they had taken that dump and mashed it down with some heavy equipment and put just a little bit of dirt on top of it. And what had happened, that as life had gone on for a couple of years in that community, it was a very new community, for a couple of years, the vibration caused by trucks passing on the highway, the vibration of just the earth's normal movement, the vibration of cars moving through that community had caused all that dirt, they'd only put a small amount on the top, to start to kind of vibrate and to fall down into the garbage and for the garbage to start coming up through the dirt. So that on the road you could find old batteries, old diapers, whatever you would find in a dump was coming up through the yards, coming up through the streets, and it was foul. And this entire community of hundreds of people was, were housed on this dump. And to complicate matters, because there was no plumbing that was any good, because there was not a water service good, over on the side of that dump where it, for years garbage had been piled and dirt had been set, was a stream 
that ran all the way around the edge of that dump where every time it rained, what washed down through the dirt and into the dump would wash out into the stream. That's where they got their water for bathing and cooking and drinking. And what had happened is they thought they could cover something up and build a regular life on top of it. But time and situations revealed what was beneath that dirt, beneath those houses, beneath those streets, beneath those yards. That's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6. He's addressing people who possess in their fallen hearts the refuse of sin. And they try to put something over the top of it and cover it up and have something normal, have something hidden, have something that life goes on, yet all of the time, all that stuff that's buried seems to be working its way back to the surface as those things that we try to hide them with are unable to do so. And so he gets this text in Matthew 6, 1, and he says, you guys need to be really careful. Y'all need to be severely careful that you are not, and he drops the word. He hasn't used it yet in Matthew. He hasn't brought it out, but it's a big gun word. He drops the word hypocrite. He uses it three specific times in chapter 6 as he leads into these three particular issues, because what was happening was people were trying to use a kind of religious landfill where they had all this garbage that needed to be dug out and dealt with. Instead, they bring the the backfill of religion in and lay it over this and try to build a normal, apparently good life on top of it when all of that stuff is just simmering below the surface. And so Jesus gives some of his strongest warnings in the Scriptures in Matthew chapters 6 and 7. And so as he introduces this idea of hypocrisy, it causes us to ask three questions. So let's do that. Number one, why the serious warning? Jesus begins in 6.1, Beware! This is not a light word. This is a lookout word. This is a, whoa! In fact, he puts it in a particular way that has weight beyond the average meaning of the word. He puts it in an emphatic place in the sentence, which means to get your attention, and then he puts it in a tense that means the kind of vigilance he's talking about is not a one-time, one moment of vigilance. 
It is an ongoing, ever-present, necessary vigilance. Several years ago, another story about mission work that kind of explains what's going on here. We were staying for the first time Thanksgiving of 2005 in the village of the Sachilas. And as we were staying there, we were getting accustomed to something we'd never done before. We were living in their cabins. We were living out in the jungle, right past the edge of the city, and we were living in huts that had split bamboo walls and thatch roofs and mud floors. And so we were getting used to that, and it was kind of a game for us when we first got there. It's kind of like an adventure. You know how when you go camping, there's an adventure side to it. But there was a side to it that we were not aware of and probably uh, were caught off guard and ill-prepared about when we first got there. We were staying, and one day I heard a scream from one of the huts and realized it was one of the young ladies that was uh, staying with us and doing ministry with us a young lady named Brooke White, and Lainey was staying in that room. My daughter was staying in that same hut with her. And so we ran over there because we'd heard a scream. And, you know, that gets your attention. You want to go make sure everything's okay. So we got over there, and, and Lainey and Brooke said, there is a huge spider in here. And so, you know, I grew up around riding spiders. How many of y'all grew up around riding spiders? You know those pretty good-sized spiders? They build a web in your yard, and they kind of have the zigzags in the middle. Well, I grew up around those. No big deal. We would feed them. I would catch moths and crickets and grasshoppers and every now and then throw a prey and manis into the web for a big battle. And, and we would feed them. So we were kind of accustomed to being around spiders. So we didn't think big deal. And so, so Lainey said, well, Dad, it was so big that I thought that it was the shadow of my hand moving across the bed. I said, well, okay, okay. And so we look up under the bed, and out crawls this really large spider. And he just kind of walks up like he's totally in control. He was not worried about us at all. That should have been a hint, by the way. And so we thought, let's catch him. Rednecks out of Georgia, I know. And so let's catch him. So we get a two-gallon Ziploc bag, all right? And so we navigate, and Henry, the Satchula man, is saying something in Spanish. And David Garza is snickering, but he's not translating. And at this point, I don't know Spanish well enough to have any idea of what's going on. And so about that time, one of our friends from Natchez, Terry Wagner, he puts the bag down over the spider, and the spider jumps. And David said, translating for Henry, they jump. I'm thinking, that's a good time to tell us. How about a few minutes ago? And so the spider jumps up into the bag, and we zip it shut. And it's a big old spider, and it's really mad. So it starts biting the bag, and venom is pouring out of his little mouth, and I'm going, and so we kind of have a good time and look at the spider, and the Satchula kind of have a way of dealing with things. They don't kill a lot of stuff because what they've realized, if you kill a lot of one thing, something else takes over. So you need everything that's there to kind of hold everything in balance. So Henry said, let's not kill it. Let's take it out to the jungle and let it go. So we have this great ceremony of letting the spider go, and we take a lot of pictures, and rest of the week goes on. We see some more of them, and we didn't ask a lot. We, we should have. And so I get home. And I get on the internet, that wonderful World Wide Web, and I, 
I pull the picture of the spider up, and I start going through this place called the arachnoboards, okay? It's all these pictures of spider. No, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. After a pretty good while, bing, that's it. Wow, hey, how cool. Let me check out this thing. Click Phonutriifera, second most venomous and dangerous spider in the world. And I'm sitting there with sweat coming out going, my kids were sleeping with this. And all of a sudden, my trips to Ecuador changed. I became hyper-vigilant. I, every time I go, I check all the beds. I check the cabins. I check everything. I look the whole time that I'm there. Landon tweeted the other day, after having a meeting with us about being vigilant of these things, Landon says, I'm out running, looking up for spiders and down for snakes. Well, the thing that Jesus is doing here is he's saying there is something dangerous here that is of such a dangerous nature that you cannot toy with it and you must always be watching for it. So he says, you must go on always being aware of this thing. So Jesus drops on us a very serious warning of something that is a danger and a hazard to our soul. What is it? Well, you see in the first phrase, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. This seems kind of counterintuitive because he just said, let your light so shine before men. And now he's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So is Jesus kind of contradicting himself? Is there a collision of thought here? Well, not really. Because what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to raise the question that we have at the top of our worship guide and our outline, and that question is, why are you doing that? Why are you doing what you're doing? What Jesus is going to say is, what is the motive under all that's going on in your life? All your religion, what is under it? What's going on there? Because it's possible that your religion can be a Laura Flores disguise where you have brought truckloads of the backfill of religion and you have laid it over the landfill of your life. And you have tried to build something normal on top of it. And Jesus says, you better be careful. Why is this so? Well, I believe the warning comes because of an inside problem and an outside problem. The inside problem is called pride. Every one of us have it. It's inescapable. It's a part of the DNA of fallen humanity. We are born with it and we nourish it. Now, the best tool I have ever received in my life for combating pride and what it really is, is this little book. 
Now, I know you're going to say, what about the Bible? Well, it is taking a couple of things from the Bible and expounding on them. This is Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's been super handy, and I really would encourage you to own this. In fact, if you will contact me, I will obtain a copy for you. I will get you a copy. If you'll contact me, send me an email, drop me a text, I will be glad to get you a copy. It's wonderful. I think that you can still get it on Kindle for either $2.99, and they've run it a couple of times for $0.99. But it is a very helpful book. The reason I'm mentioning it is the four things that I'm about to tell you about pride come from this book, and I wanted to give credit to Tim Keller. Here they are. Here's what Tim Keller says is going on that's causing this prideful thing that leads to hypocrisy. This prideful thing that takes our landfill and tries to backfill it with religion to build something normal on top of it. He says, here's what's going on internally in every human being. Every human being is born empty, void of a relationship with God. And somehow in their life, every human will try to fill that emptiness with something. They will do it. They will labor for that. They will go after it. They will move toward that end. They will try to fill it with something. And so that emptiness is something that causes a great deal of emotional turmoil. And in a sense, that emptiness has to be filled with something big enough to occupy it, which is God in us through Christ is the only true filling of this. And so Tim Keller says we're empty. He says, second, that we're painful. Because we bloat ourselves with fake things, we actually end up as painful human beings. He says kind of like a swollen hand or a bloated gut, it's painful to be bloated with something that's not right. We fill ourselves with things that puff up our pride and arrogance, and we become very painful people. We become people who suffer with a great deal of anxiety over the fact that we hurt due to our emptiness, and we hurt due to our pride and how we've tried to cope with it. The third thing Tim Keller says is we're busy. We spend our time trying to gain attention for ourselves or give attention to ourselves to deal with the emptiness and to deal with the pain. And therefore, as a result, the fourth thing he says is we become very fragile. We get wounded so easily. Somebody pokes a little hole in the bloatedness of our pride and we blow off steam. They offend us and we get so angry, so hurt, so deeply. Tim Keller says, inside, the reason we're dealing with this thing called pride and hypocrisy is that we have not rightly filled ourselves with God who would settle our pain, give us true rest from our busyness, and allow us to be durable rather than fragile. And so what's happening is that hypocrisy thrives because of pride. Second, There's external forces at work. Not just the internal going on that we need to be warned of, but there is an external going on. That external is is that we as a Christian community have not fostered an environment of grace in which we balance the discipline of 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 
with the tenderness of 2 Corinthians 2.5 and Galatians 6.1. We've not properly balanced how we deal with sin and struggle. And we tend to go to one of two extremes, and it fosters more hypocrisy. One extreme is legalism, where we're just jumping on everybody and condemning them if they're not wired up just like us. And the other end is this liberalism of just saying, well, everything's okay, and just do whatever you want, whatever fulfills you. And there's this place in the middle where we confront sin, but graciously and gracefully, so that people can be repentant and restored. And so here's what's happening. Jesus is saying to us, you guys need to look out. And to be hyper-vigilant, continually vigilant. Because this pride in you has as its natural and first tendency to operate in hypocrisy because of the pride in you and because of the culture around you. And therefore, this is something you have to watch out for outside and inside. And so Jesus' warning comes to us because of the danger of pride. So the second question we ask is, what am I wearing? What am I wearing? This is an important question because of the word hypocrisy and what it actually means. When Jesus dropped the word hypocrisy, it was offensive because it described a play actor, someone who was in a costume in a Greek drama. Someone who had donned a mask and donned an outfit to play a role that was not their own person or personality. And so they had an outfit on. And so the thing that Jesus is going to do is he's going to ask you, what are you wearing? What did you put on today to feed the pride inside you and give you a sense of worth that is not attached to God himself? And what role are you playing so that the people around you will accept you, like you, compliment you, and keep you? So what are you wearing? And so Jesus, when he warns us, he says there is this danger due to your pride and people's brokenness and how they observe you that you will put on a mask and an outfit to be something you're not. And it'll be just like Laura Flores. There will be the refuse the landfill of sin and unrepentant behavior being covered by the backfill of the cover of religion. And Jesus said, that's hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from the joining of two words that seem to have a very deep meaning. The meaning is located in the Greek theater. The hypocrite was either a person, when you join these two words, hupo and kritikos. Hupo means under or beneath. Kritikos means a judge, a spectator, or a critic. 
So it seemed to be implying one of two things, that the outfit was being used to hide from the eye of the audience, the eye of the judge, the eye of the critic, who you really are. You're trying to hide that. Or the word means to perform for the pleasure of the judge, the critic, the audience. It seemed to have its motivation both in an internal struggle of pride and an external struggle of conformity to what the audience wanted to applaud. And so here you have the illustration inside the text itself inside the Word itself, that our great struggle of hypocrisy wells up from our own pride and from the world around us trying to conform us to a certain behavior, a certain mindset. And so, there are three kinds of hypocrites. There's what I call the initial hypocrite. What's that? It's the person who first gets into religion and wants to play the game to fit in. They jump in and they try all they can to conform to rules and expectations and all of these things. And they jump in because they really want the community that calls themselves Christians to accept them. So they play this initial role, but after a while they get tired of it and they bail out. Second kind is what we'll call the occasional hypocrite. They're the Easter and Christmas group. They're the ones who say, I need just enough hypocrisy to pass snuff a few times a year and look like things are good to go. So I'm going to stop in and try to put on some kind of airs, some kind of religion that makes me look like, yeah, maybe she's got it together. Maybe he's got it together. And then there's the most dangerous one, the perpetual hypocrite. They're the ones who entrench themselves in religion and grow stauncher and stauncher and stauncher in their hypocrisy and live their entire life like the Pharisees under the backfill of religion trying to hide the landfill of sin. And they just get better and better and better. And every time something creeps up through the street of their life that looks like the trash below all they do is bring another dump truck load of religion into their life to cover up for what's really underneath. And they carry on airs of religion. And so whether we are an initial hypocrite, an occasional hypocrite, a perpetual hypocrite, hypocrisy touches us all, tempts us all, trains us all, to act ways that Jesus does not welcome or encourage. Here's what happens. Finally, people get fed up with hypocrisy in their own life, and here's what happens. They come along and they say, let me tell you something, I'm tired of playing the game. I'm not going to be a fake. I'm tired of pretending. I'm trying to do what everybody thinks I ought to do. But here's what happens. Rather than embracing true repentance, listen, one of, one of the lots that, that is in the vicinity of my house, several years ago when the community was being developed, for some reason, they chose to bury 
a bunch of a bunch of uh, limbs and stumps and just building stuff in in a lot and and they thought man you know nobody's gonna know and and so what happened is that stuff started decaying and, and, and that lot started sinking. And somebody came in and actually did a test on that lot, found out all that stuff was in there, and the only resolution was to come and dig all of it out and put the proper stuff back in. Here's what's happening. What's happening is a lot of folks get tired of hypocrisy, whether they grew up in it and were formed and shaped by religion or they fell into it later in life, or whether it was just sort of a natural tendency. They finally come to a breaking point and say, I'm tired of playing this game. But instead of repentance, they just brazenly sin. And they call it genuineness. They think God's going to bless them for being genuinely sinful. It's like, hey, I'm not going to put this backfill anymore. I'm just going to be a dump. And I'm going to call this okay, because at least I'm not faking it. At least I'm not pretending and what they do is they brazenly sin in the face of God and think that because it's not hypocrisy of the religious kind, that they're good to go. But here's the problem. It's the hypocrisy of another kind. It's the hypocrisy of thinking that God smiles on brazen sin. And that's a whole nother kind of hypocrisy. It's a hypocrisy that says God's okay with me just being wantonly disobedient because at least I'm not pretending. Don't I get points for genuineness here? And so Jesus is combating these things and he says, what are you wearing? What, what mask are you putting on? What clothing are you adorning yourself in order that you might be somehow filled in your heart and somehow impressing others. So he kind of finishes it with this. And I think this is the most helpful thing of all. And that's the third question. We, we got first question, really important. Why the serious warning? Because mm, <laughs> landfill, everybody's got one. It's called sin. It has to be dealt with through Jesus and the cross and true repentance and faith in Him. Because of hypocrisy, backfill. There's the danger of this in all of us to be something we're not. Mask, outfit, pretend. But the third question we have to ask is, who is watching? I don't know how much time you've spent in the book of the Revelation. I've not spent a lot of time in there in my life. I really haven't. I'm no expert on Bible prophecy and the fulfillment. But right now on Wednesday nights, we're walking through the book of the Revelation. And it's been really good for me to go back through and really contemplate some of the things. And I shared with our Wednesday night group a few weeks ago. I said, what do you think is the scariest thing in the book of the Revelation? You know, we talked a little bit about things like blood at the depth of the horse's bridle. That's pretty scary. Vials of wrath being poured out scorpion-like things stinging you, lake of fire. There's all kinds of scary things in the book of the Revelation. Do you know what I believe is the scariest thing in the book of the Revelation? It's this two-word phrase on the lips of Jesus. Here it is. I know.
That's the scariest thing in the book. It's Jesus saying to every one of us, I know. I know I know it all. I know everything. I know. There's not anything scarier in the book. Because everything that happens in the rest of the book that's scary comes from this one thing that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what we're wearing today. He knows the facade. He knows the landfill. He knows the backfill. He knows. And there is nothing hidden from his sight. I want you to read with me the end of verse 1 and how Jesus handles this. Let's read all the way through. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's what Jesus calls hypocrisy. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And Chuck Quarles, in his great knowledge of Greek, said the best way to translate this is to say, otherwise you have no reward in the eyes of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is implying is that God sees. He sees everything. And he knows all of the debris in the landfill of our lives. He's sorted it. He knows it. He knows. He knows all of the backfill of religion that we have tried to use at some occasion to try to cover that landfill. He says, you know, there's a day coming when it's not going to matter what you think of yourself inside your heart. And it's not going to matter what these people who are looking at you on this earth think about you. There's a day coming that he who knows will have the only opinion that matters at all. And on that day, the only thing that will matter is what he thinks. And so the wonderful thing about the gospel is that that's why Jesus came. He is the landfill expert. He is the one who can come into your life and with his own hands because of what he's done at the cross having paid for the landfill of the garbage of the sin in our lives because of that he is the one who can literally come in and bring 1 John 1 9 to us if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all That's all he wants to do. He wants us to rake back the backfill of religion, expose the landfill of sin, and say the only thing we can have mercy on me. I'm a sinner.
And with his loving hands, he doesn't just remove it. He immerses himself in our garbage at the cross. And there at the cross, he is sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. And so He becomes what we are. He is shamed for it. He is punished for it. He is murdered for it. He is buried for it. And praise God, He is raised because it's done. He's up. Because He's the landfill cleaner. And He can move into the Laura Flores of your life and he can roll back all of the normalcy you've tried to build in your sinful, wretched hypocrisy. And he can look at you and he can say this. I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I know and I love you. I know! So I think what Jesus is going to do, and we will experience this as we walk through the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, is he wants to walk into the landfill of your life, and he wants to dig all the refuse out, let it be what it is, wash you, cleanse you, forgive you, and then after removing it, Put the righteousness that he has down into the ground of who you are and let you build all the rest of your life not on who you are and what you've done but on who he is and what he's done so that you don't have to worry about the foundation for your life. Would you bow with me? This is a challenging passage a serious warning an exposure of what we're wearing then in his grace he says I want you to know who's watching it's so easy just to look at God as judge but Jesus says something really sweet here he said you know who's watching your father He's talking about a relationship for you. He's offering you a personal relationship with God through faith in Him. And, and that's what I'm inviting you to today. Let's just, let's just rake back the backfill of our religion. Let's just expose the landfill of our sin and let's look to Jesus and let's say, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe, Jesus, that you died for that sin and you became that sin and you were punished for that sin and you were shamed for that sin so that you could take that sin forever away from me. And so I embrace you, Jesus. Save me. And just let me be what you want me to be. Let me live for the one who's watching from the grandstand of heaven. Let me live for one, an audience of one. 